In the wake of Me Too, Time's Up, and the growing list of public figures who have been called out for sexual assault and misconduct, it can seem like exciting, spontaneous, and satisfying sex is an unattainable ideal. That sex is too deeply buried beneath misinformation, violence, and shame to be enjoyed anymore. And yet, I know from personal experience that that is not true. Despite the odds, people are having great sex all the time, but they don't always get the chance to talk about it. Well, today, listeners, I'm here to change that. My name is Robin, and this is The Peak. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Peak, the talk show about what makes good sex good and what people have learned over the course of their intimate lives. My name is Robin, and today I am joined by my dear friend, the amazing and talented Ashley Mandanis. (laughs) Welcome to The Peak, Ashley. Thank you. What a wonderful welcome that was. (laughs) It's nice to be here. It is very nice to be here in your apartment. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right. Well, Ashley, why don't you start by introducing yourself to the listeners? Who are you? Well, um, my name is Ashley Mandanis. I have lived in Oklahoma for most of my life, and I am a non-binary, polyamorous, pansexual person who really just tries to live in a way that allows people to be comfortable around her, which is not necessarily the best thing to do, but I am trying to do it as well as I can. So what does that mean, that you try to live in a way that lets other people be comfortable around you? Um, well, I, I try really hard to be a non-antagonist, unless it means you know, challenging someone's perspective, but I don't like doing that in a way that is, that is like adversary. I I like doing it in more of a way that is collaborative. So more like inviting? Yeah, because I feel like the only way people can become better or change for the better together is if they both are working towards the same goal rather than working against each other. And I feel like that's the same, that's the same principle that I strive towards in my sex life. That's very interesting. Would you say that that is also um, the way you approach acting and theater? Yeah, like it's more of an artistic way of mind. I don't know, I don't know if that's what you mean by saying that, but I I agree that 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 comes from me being an actor and uh, being in the theater or being in any kind of storytelling art form where people come together and um, they come together in a room and they they work towards something and they leave the room having new ideas and new products that would have never happened had they never come together. I love that. So will you tell us a little bit about your sexuality? Like how would you describe your sexual personality um when you said sexual personality i kind of like in my head was like thinking about what a buzzfeed quiz would say about me (laughs) i don't really really know um i i think i'm i'm at a loss of how to describe myself because i feel like there's such a fluidity in that um i have a hard time pinpointing exactly what I would describe myself as, but I have a few things that have been constant, which is I am masochistic and I do enjoy like power play, like in BDSM and different, you know, different kinks and, you know, sub fetishes beneath that. And I also really enjoy looking into new things. Like I'm very adventurous and I'm very, I will try anything once as long as it's mutually consensual. Thank you. That's a very good answer. Um, Do you often involve props or toys or um, other items besides bodies in your sex? 
I do. A lot of times I really find so much utility in either everyday items or like designated sex toys. Um, I actually have a whole bag of toys in the other room and actually like a bag of toys in my car. Um, really? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Do you keep them in the car all the time, just like for emergency use, or? <laughs> I don't. I don't really know if they would ever have like an emergency situation where I'd need them. But it's just easier to have like a kit that I keep in my home base and a kit that I keep where I travel to other places. So so it's full of like toys that are more dispensable or ones that I wouldn't mind losing if I happen to leave them someplace that I couldn't mm-hmm. get back. <laughs> That makes sense. That's actually very, like, smart and I'm utilitarian. Just to be <laughs> no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you usually use protection? I do use protection with people. My uh, so my relationship situation is basically uh, since I'm polyamorous, I'm seeing a couple of people seriously, and a couple of people long distance, and I'm also. Um, having sexual relations with other people who are not necessarily as close to me. And for those people, I definitely always use, um, you know, condoms and or, you know, dental dams and things like that because I, I mean, what's, what's one more step towards being safe if you're not practicing complete celibacy? Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm currently on, uh, the implant. Well, uh, not in... Not an IUD, but I have the the I arm implant. Yes, the arm implant. It's called Nexplant. There we go. Oh, okay. I was I kept forgetting what the name of it was, but I have Nexplant okay. in my arm. Nice. Yeah, and so like with my partners that I that I have been very intimate with and have long-standing relationships, I'm I don't use any other protection than that. Nice. Um, a previous interviewee I spoke to talked about how they were trying to make dental dams cool again um, Mm -hmm. and have, like, faced some resistance from partners who are like, what? A dental dam? What is this? (laughs) And I was just curious if you have had any kind of, like, averse or hesitant reactions to dental dams. Um. Like, from partners. It's kind of strange. Like, people will be hesitant about using them or look at me strange whenever I just, like, pull one out. I think... I think since there's so much less talked about than condoms, I don't know, just in the main media, it's hard for people to include them in, in their lives, even if they they do have, you know, sex with partners that have vaginas. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't I don't think it's, it's, it's as comfortable a subject as condoms just because of the way they've been not portrayed very much in mainstream media. I think that's a big thing, too, like, mm-hmm. what's portrayed in mainstream media and how people perceive things based on what they watch. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, I I have had some adverse reactions. To, like, sometimes I want to use gloves when I'm, like, fingering people because I like being, I don't know, sometimes I'm really fastidious. But that's mm-hmm. a different thing than using a dental dam, of course. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I, I have, like, this thing of gloves by my bedstand. <laughs> non-latex like (laughs) surgical gloves i mean hey you know it's not it's not a bad idea and we've actually um the same person who talked about dental dams also talked about a partner who uh used gloves on them that was because he uh had eczema on his hands and wanted to protect his own skin from from any possible fluid transaction Yeah. yeah Um, makes sense because like I mean I'm always picking up my cuticles and like I don't want to yeah do anything to yeah that makes a lot of sense um I think though with gloves or dental dams a lot of people it just doesn't even occur to them yeah because like manual and oral sex from what I understand are the ways that a lot of people start having sex and they sometimes see it as like safe alternatives where, like, nothing bad can happen to you if you're just, if you're not using, like, genital-on-genital interaction for your sex. There's kind of, like, a rose-colored glasses syndrome that comes with, you know, the innocence of that versus the, oh, no, penetration. Yeah. It's this, it's this thing where suddenly everything is life or death and, like, STDs are not and pregnancy are not and, I mean, it is pregnancy or not. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. But the rest of them is like... 
Actually, if you only knew. (laughs) (laughs) If you only knew. Yeah. Man. All right. Well, I think I've interrogated you enough on that friend. Okay. Um, (laughs) But I will... uh, I'll start to move into now. Can you please tell us about one of your early sexual experiences? Well, um, there are a couple contenders, but I'll I'll kind of lay them out for you. And maybe if you, I don't know, maybe if you want to like pick one for me to talk about, maybe okay? Because I don't I don't know what kind of content is okay. Um, Just there, there's no bar really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, because there's one that's, like, really, really, like, th- that basically was my most traumatic experience ever. And Actually, then was, like, let me amend. The bar is what you are comfortable what... <laughs> talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. Um, well, I... I'll talk about my first sexual experience ever. Okay. Um, which was when I was in middle school, and I was friends with this girl who would often tell me that I was just so pretty and like she always just wanted to be around me and to hang out and to be touching me and things like that and then one day after class she kind of like cornered me in a hall um and like asked me to come down into like you know this place that was kind of in the the basement area of the school where Mm -hmm. there was like a lot of storage and they were never really locked the doors there and so like I was like, okay, this is not, I don't know what's, what this is. And then she, she just said she wanted to talk to me. And so we went down there and she basically like pushed me up against the wall and started touching me inappropriately and like kissing my neck and doing things that were very, very, very foreign to me. Um, and I basically had no real say in what was happening because one she is was a lot bigger than me and she had been my friend for a while and I didn't know what to say or do in that situation Mm -hmm. that would make it all better and I was really scared and I had no idea how to how to respond and um that was kind of like the first sexual traumatic incident that has put me where I am today (laughs) wow yeah so what was your understanding of consent at the time Oh, I don't think I, I even, I don't think I even knew that that was something that I had the right to give. Like, I didn't, I didn't know, I, I think even conceptually, that I had the right to give consent or say no. And I honestly didn't even know what was happening. It happened really quickly. And so I, I don't think that I had any idea of what consent could be then. Mm-hmm. What was your, um, I guess, what was your response to that encounter and how did it affect you in the moment and immediately after? Um, well, I, I think that I just kind of was frozen then and after, after a while she just realized that I wasn't doing anything and that I wasn't saying anything and I wasn't really responding very much so she just kind of stopped and I just went away and I for a while I didn't really talk to her and I didn't really tell anyone about it I didn't ever tell anyone about it until probably my when I was like 20 21 when I was talking to a partner Uh um and I just kind of kept it with me and I it just kind of festered there for a while and it didn't really do much good for me, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like it did as much in the way of making me a more afraid person. But it, it still just affected me negatively in that I wasn't comfortable with anything sexual for, like, a long time. Hello, cat. Yes, there's a cat. <laughs> My cat is here. My cat is here okay. <laughs> I was gonna say she's here she's queer she's full of fear but I only know one of those things that she's here she is definitely here and she's purring <laughs> well that was a nice little like mood nice lightener little... <laughs> I feel like I kind of like clammed up even then trying to describe how it affected me I guess it, it just that means it has still yeah. affected me I mean your body language changed yeah while you were talking about yeah it. it's like you it, well, I wanted to become smaller you, you and brought yourself retreat. in yeah 
Yeah. I mean, that wasn't even the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Like, the other thing that was really, really traumatic that I didn't even talk about was way worse. But still, just that amount of non-consensual action was very traumatizing, no matter how much I try to, like, cover it up with, oh, I'm fine. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. So, can you remember the first time you had a sexual experience that was good for you? Yeah, um, I think it was, um, like in early high school, I, I basically had been doing a lot of, like, sexual things for a while that were that were basically all one-sided, that were me just trying to reclaim my own sexuality or, like, trying to force myself into consent, which is really stupid. (laughs) It's so hard, but it's also... Futile. It's, like... But also, like, kind of easy to do. Um, But, yes, so your first positive sexual experience. um, Yeah, it it was... um, Whenever I I was finally, like, dating someone who was really, really, like, sweet to me, but at the same time, it was a, it was a girl, and my parents didn't ever know that I was into not just men for a very long time, and they were very, uh, averse to that because of what the implications would be in, you know, in public if I was, like, seeing a girl, Mm -hmm. and so I saw this girl for a while, Um, and the first time we did anything sexual beyond, you know, the occasional kiss was really, really communicative. Yeah. Surprisingly. And we just were very, very careful around each other. And even though, even though we wanted the same thing, we wanted to be together and we wanted to make each other feel good. Like we were still very cautious about doing things and, like, asking to do them as opposed to just, like, going and doing them without making sure that it's okay. And it was really, really, it was, it was meticulous, but it was really enjoyable because we always just knew that we were pleasing each other and it kind of went on that way until we weren't seeing each other anymore because we weren't allowed to. But that's another story. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so you used the word meticulous. Yeah. Um, meticulous how? Like, I think that it was just sort of a, just a very, I'm going to say careful again, way of checking in with the other person very often and um, so just very genuinely. Yes, yes. Um, almost like I, people talk about micro consent, like asking before, like every change of action um, sexually. And it's like, I feel like it was like that. It was mm-hmm. like micro-consent. Mm-hmm. And can you, I mean, just in case listeners haven't heard, because I haven't heard quite that term before, so just what is micro-consent? Micro-consent. Um, well, it's it's kind of just, so a lot of people think of consent as being like an okay for, you know, sexual interactions to begin mm-hmm. or to like to commence. And that it's okay, and you can and you can like rescind that consent if you want things to stop. But micro consent includes, you know, consenting to a change in the action of what's happening, like a change of position or like a change in in the power dynamic, just littler subsections of the action that is occurring. Mm-hmm. Consenting to those. <laughs> yeah, and how did that communication? work for you guys. Um, I, I know a lot of people hear affirmative, hear affirmative consent and think like, gosh, do I need to pull out a paper contract and have them sign it before every like hug? (laughs) Oh man. No, I, uh, (laughs) we, we actually just were very, very, it was a casual thing. No matter how much you describe it as like meticulous and like fastidious and like, it -hmm. was very casual because of our relationship with each other. We were just able to we were able to just communicate as two people who wanted the same things and who wanted each other to be happy. Like, like it wouldn't even be, oh, is it okay now that I do this? Or um, do you have 
do I have your permission to do this? It was more like, oh, do you want to this? Or like, do you want to that? Like, you know, things like that, Mm -hmm. that, that are just very casual and just asking questions. It's not something that we ever wrote on paper or signed or it, it wasn't like this huge deal where you have to have like a statement, like in therapy that you have to ask, but Mm-hmm. Just checking in. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I just... Oh, the cat is in here. Oh, yes. Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that is a really excellent example of just, like, simple checking in with your partner. Like, hey, is this okay? Hey, you feeling good? Like, yeah. just stuff like that. Yeah, and even if... A lot of people will tell me that, like, they have relationships where um there's one person who's really in control and one person who isn't very much in control and and they want that to remain sacred like they don't want the power dynamic to be tainted by asking if someone's okay or like you know interrupted by something like that and i i think that's so confusing to me because it could be as something as simple as you know the the person in power just like checking in with the person if their hands are bound like how do your Mm -hmm. hands feel or you know things like that just it doesn't have to interrupt anything it just has to be something I guess that is a constant even Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to take away from the power dynamic because in the end I'm going on a tangent here no it's okay (laughs) I tangents are welcome (laughs) (laughs) because like in the end like in a in a master sub relationship or like a dominant submissive relationship the the submissive person is giving over a lot of you know their their consent initially to the person who's dominating them but really they are supposed to be the ones in control because they, mm-hmm. they all the boundaries begin and end with with what they're okay with in that sort of situation because they're the, they're the person who's being affected mm-hmm. and like it's it's confusing to me why people wouldn't want to keep checking in with them to see if it's okay lest you traumatize them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is very important. Um, One line that I once heard suggested was, what do you want me to do to you? Or like, where do you want me to kiss you? And I think that that is such a good line. I think it's brilliant because it's hot. It's It's like an invitation to fantasize. And then have that be what happens to you. I just, I think it's brilliant. And it's not stepping out of the sexual atmosphere. It's included within it, but then it's also including consent. Yeah. Okay. So can you please tell me about one of your absolute favorite sexual experiences? Um, like I, since I have, I feel like I have like, almost two sexual lives like Uh one that is between that is more of like a lifestyle that is between like a master and a sub and -hmm. then like one that is just between my romantic partners and I Mm -hmm. like I feel like there are there are like there's such a wide spectrum that are there are two experiences that I'm thinking of in general also just because there are a lot of good ones to choose from no matter how many bad ones there are um the first one is or was this this master sub relationship I had with this guy in Tulsa for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, there was this one session that we had that was like a bondage session, and it also included like a lot of sensation play. I had this uh, dominant and submissive relationship with this guy for a very long time that was uh, a very intimate relationship, but it was very. It, we knew exactly who we were to each other from the beginning. It was it was almost a very, like, concrete definition of, like, dominant and submissive. And um, we had one session that I went into subspace for, like, an hour. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, there was, there was bondage involved in, like, a lot of sensation play, as mm-hmm. I said. And he had already known what a lot of my buttons were from, like, experimentation before. Mm-hmm. And, um... I had given him prior consent to use those buttons within this session, and he was really, really good at 
allowing me to come down from something and not overwhelming me with so many things, Mm -hmm. but at the same time doing like doing enough to not let things become stagnant and he was just really Mm -hmm. masterful and I I I don't know I've never met anyone like that uh, again or since like since and um it was probably one of the most transcendent experiences I've had like as a sub Mm -hmm. just because I, I had so much trust in him and I had so much respect for him and what he did and he trusted me enough to let him know what you know, what he could change. And we had safe words and we had safe actions if I were gagged. Mm -hmm. And it was just a very unreal experience. How so? Like, it it seems like it could have been too good to be true. Like, if there was a heaven, like, I think that I might have experienced what it was like to just be in it. It's it's like this. I'm ex- I'm describing this so grandly because I just hold it as one of my favorite sexual memories yeah. ever. But I feel like a lot to a lot of people don't really get into that sort of relationship with like a master and sub thing. I don't I don't know. I don't want to make a blanket term. So like a really good sexual experience I've had recently um, was with this person who I am seeing fairly regularly and they're a partner and they are a very special person to me and we are very good at micro consent we Mm -hmm. we have gotten into a rhythm with each other where we're comfortable telling each other what we want to change and why and what we can do next time to be better especially in role play situations and things like that and you know just trying to improve the experience every time and within the and during the experience too Mm -hmm. we're always trying to like be better for each other and um this is kind of graphic but I was like (laughs) I was like um we were watching one of my like favorite pornographic videos because he I I had blown him before while he was watching one of his or while he was watching porn and like um we got to the point where he was fingering me and I had never really done anything like that while watching porn with a partner Mm -hmm. and like I ended up not watching it and just being focused in on this person um and he had already known all of the buttons to push while fingering me and or fisting me Mm -hmm. and uh it got to the point where I squirted so much that I like flooded the chair that I was on and wow. like the floor around and like it was in insane it was insane like I don't think I'll ever have an experience like that again and it was just crazy wow that is all like so fascinating and fantastic <laughs> I have a couple of follow-up questions for the two stories you just told so the first one is um what is sub mode like subspace? Subspace, yes, that's what you said. Okay, um, subspace is, in BDSM it's a term that's used to describe um, the rush of adrenaline and the oxytocin and the, um, just all the, <laughs> just all the good chemicals that are released in your brain after experiencing um, some modicum of pain or like however much, however much pain you can withstand coupled with pleasure that comes from it, especially if you're a masochist. Um, that is administered in such a way that you, that you kind of are, you are lifted. It's almost, it's becoming high off of that release, Mm -hmm. like that physical catharsis. And suddenly you are, it's almost as if you're floating in your own body as that's what it feels to me, Mm -hmm. um, is happening. And that, that's just like a common phenomena that happens with subs whenever they're with masters that they've been with for a while who know what they're doing and Mm -hmm. who know the specific subs and their buttons and Uh uh-huh so this partner that you were with in um the first story you just told Mm -hmm. um was that a uh like a significant and i guess long term has a lot of connotations but was he was he a um a partner that you had been with many times? Yes. He, um, we had established a master sub relationship and, uh, very early on when I was in Tulsa and, uh, we'd been together for like 
six months by the time that this had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I'd, I'd gotten to subspace before, but never for like an, a whole hour. Subspace usually lasts 15 to 20 minutes for me in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was after like two months of getting to know each other and feeling comfortable around each other. But like at the six month mark, when I got to like an hour of subspace, that was, that was what I was talking about. <laughs> That's really interesting. That yeah. wasn't a term that I had heard before. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. And then I also have a que- a couple of questions about the second story. So, um, you talked about squirting, which is something that not everyone with a vagina experiences. And I think there's a lot of curiosity surrounding it. So yeah. would you be willing to tell us a little bit about that? Like what that is like to happen for you? Um, well, I think it feels a lot like there's just a lot of pressure um, and a lot of displacement of fluid. I know this is very, <laughs> this is very medical sounding. Yeah, but it, yeah it, it's, it's fine. It's, it's candid. Yeah, it's, it's like whenever there's nowhere for this liquid to go anymore, for this female ejaculate to go anymore. And I do believe in the difference between female ejaculate and urine. Like... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, sometimes they can combine and, like, you accidentally pee a little bit, but, like, that's part of the territory. You're doing stuff down there and there's going to be stuff <laughs> that comes out. I don't know. But, like, yeah. I I'd never thought that I could ever possibly squirt until, like, high school, uh, like, like late high school um, with one of my partners that I met at, like, this choral competition. And, like, he... He showed me this video online of this of this guy making this girl squirt by just doing an upward motion, like the motion that's like come hither, when doing he, like the G spot, the stimulation, thing, but very very thing. rough, and having his hand above her mound, just going like up and down with the other hand, really really rough and really really fast, huh. and like I he tried that with me and it worked, and I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if this was something that was specifically me or that other women or that other people with vaginas can do or have the ability to experience. I don't know. Like, I I think, I think it's possible for people that are hydrated. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure. I don't know if other people feel that way, but I certainly never thought I could before I did. Wow. Um, I just, I think it's a, it's like a technique thing and maybe you have to also be in the mood and... It, it's very, I, I don't want to talk about like other people's experiences because I'm not other people. For sure. But um, for me, it just feels like it's this huge, it's this huge release and it just keeps going until like all of the liquid is out. And when, when it happened to me, like it kept happening every time we would see each other and he would do the same things. Um, and I haven't been able to score with like every partner and I think that's just due to, like, different anatomies and different, you know, mm-hmm. different ways people touch each other. But, like, um, when I have squirted, it feels really similar to, like, that feeling. I don't know if everybody feels this feeling, so I don't know if people are going to... You can just speak from your own experience. <laughs> yeah. When it's... Okay. Yeah. Just say what you... Just speak okay. the truth. Okay. Well, um, it feels kind of like whenever you have something inside of you but you're just it's it's a little too much like it's a little too big and you just need to like make more room for it or I don't know it's pushing on things and displacing a lot of liquid and there's a lot of pressure and when it finally releases it's like a gushing pulse of pleasure I guess it's like pulsing gushing pleasure that's the way I describe it Wow. So does it always happen concurrent with an orgasm? Yeah. For me, like, I feel like there are several different orgasms that I personally have, like, you know, clitoral or G-spot or, you know, even from cervix stimulation. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like when I squirt, it's it's a combination of, like, G-spot and something else. I don't know. I honestly don't know, like, what makes yeah. people squirt. I, I don't either. <laughs> it's so hard to do. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah, that is so fascinating, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a really crazy, like, 
thing to think about that yeah. there's female ejaculate like why would that have a reason to be does it um is it at all similar to the sensation of like really really having to go to the bathroom and then after like an hour of having to hold it you get to go or is that just like I feel like that's just more like relief from pain but like this is this is not really unless it he's unless people are meaning to hurt me for masochistic reasons but like I, I, it's it's less of relief from pain and more of like a burst of I don't know a burst of this energy this kinetic energy that's been held in place for so long and then it just kind of goes whoosh and the whoosh is liquid but it is a very cathartic whoosh and like it, it's less like physical tingly pleasure than I feel like a clitoral orgasm would be described as uh-huh. but like it's it's very profound and satisfying. My cat. <laughs> wow. Well, that's awesome. That was... I definitely just learned a lot right now. So Yay! thank you so much for sharing. I'm so glad that I could say things yes. to you. <laughs> I, I am too. I am so happy to be interviewing you. Yay! Uh, okay, so I have one more main question, which is how do you find that you have changed as a person and as a sexual being since your first sexual experiences and who you are now? Um, I definitely think that I have experienced a lot of different changes in my own ideology. Like my own worldview has changed a lot since the first sexual experience I've experiences that I've had. Um, mainly because I was raised Roman Catholic and, and like, made to think that everything sexually pleasurable was sinful. And um, just, like, in my own family alone, I had a lot of shame around, like, sexual feelings or being attracted to people for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, after that first interaction with that girl and, like, after I was, like, raped a second time by someone I really trusted, which was, like, huge traumatic event, like, I... Mm -hmm. I kind of like experienced a really big apostasy and like couldn't couldn't imagine going back to being celibate because I wanted so much to reclaim my sexuality and to to take back my my role in this world that I was so new to that mm-hmm. I didn't even know I had a role in like to to become to become like the master of my circumstance as opposed to the victim of it mm-hmm. and um I think that took me down a road of uh, doing a lot of questionable things and a lot of not very things I'm not very proud of. And then, like, I I slowly came to believe in my own self worth again uh, through finding that it is it was okay for me to feel good with other people and it, that it was okay to um, to want to voice my desires or to voice my non-consent um in any situation and just having just learning about that and learning from people around me that I met in my collegiate years and even at towards the end of high school was just a, a very formative and positively formative experience for me because I I still really struggle with whether or not I deserve to feel pleasure and whether or not I um and like worthy as a sexual being but just with the help of people and like communicating about this sort of thing and being able to be comfortable around people enough to consent or not consent is is something that's really helped me come into my own sexually and to be able to hold sexual relationships with so many people and be as healthy as I can about it and so I think I've I think I've come full circle at this point in my life, which will continue to go around. Hopefully it'll become a 721 day as opposed to just a 360. I don't know. A 720. (laughs) So you say full circle. Does that mean you feel like you're back where you started? I don't feel like I'm... I feel like before I came into, you know, any, any sort of sexuality that I really knew anything about, I feel like I was okay with myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm slowly coming back to that, to being okay with myself, but including sexuality and that definition. I see. Okay. 
I think I originally misunderstood your circle metaphor. Yeah, I... To where the beginning of the circle was um, your first assault and that you had come back to it. Oh, yeah. I was was very concerned for a moment. I was like, oh, Ashley. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I'm very glad to hear that you feel that you have come back to a positive place in your life. Yeah. Um, uh, So I have a couple of very personal follow-up questions for you. And if you're not comfortable with them, you don't have to answer. But I want to know, you talked about affirmative consent. And you've talked about um, traumatic experiences in which that took place before you really understood consent. Um, at what age do you feel like you began to understand what consent was and began to feel comfortable in your ability to give or deny it? Um, I think I understood consent at a different point that I, that I felt like I could confirm or deny it. Like I understood consent, like when I was 15, 16, um, I knew, I knew what it was and I knew that people like had the right to give it Mm -hmm. and that it was better if people gave it and meant it as opposed to just, you know, under false pretenses. But I still under false pretenses gave it all the time because I think I was so, I I was looking for worth in like sexual activity and I was... Mm -hmm like craving that attention so much that I wasn't getting elsewhere and I thought the only way that I could get it was through you know sexual activity even even if I didn't feel like I wanted it Mm -hmm. and so I felt like I I understood that people would only do it with me or the people that I was doing it with would only do it with me if I gave consent regardless of how I felt Mm -hmm. And that was terrible. (laughs) Um, Just for everybody. I don't know. But then um, I guess when I think I finally felt okay with with not having... I finally felt okay with giving myself the option to say no when I was like 21. Which so like two years ago. Yeah. It's not been very long. But uh, I was with someone at the time who was just very very understanding and not patronizing whenever they told me that I I was worth so many things and that I was worth just as much as anyone else was mm-hmm. and I I I did kind of get validation from them but at the same time I was in a place where I knew that I needed to change my own way of thinking of things for myself if I if I was ever going to feel better, if I was ever going to get out of this anxiety and this depression that I was constantly feeling. Um, that also had a lot to do with my my hopelessness and not being able to say no to things. And so, uh, yeah, 20. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember any... Um encounters you had when you first began to set boundaries with your partners like if a partner wanted to do something that you didn't want to do you would tell them to stop or um or I guess like establish beforehand like this is what I want to do this is what I don't want to do um surely with uh my with my relationships with with designated masters we would always have like a list of like what was okay and we would always mm-hmm. have these conversations and like have meetings and things about what was okay to do and what was okay not to do and like showing the showing of toys and like devices and stuff mm-hmm. but that's like a very very like specific instance um that in a, in a lifestyle that I don't I don't know if I don't know well it's it's just a very specific lifestyle mm-hmm. and um I think, I think though, I, what was the question? Uh, maybe I should rephrase it. I guess at what point did you start to feel comfortable setting boundaries and saying no to oh. different sexual acts with your partners? Yeah. Um, I think that was like in the middle of my college career, like, and I, 
I kind of just suddenly felt like I didn't need to define myself as someone who was only worthy because they would always put out or like someone who was only defined by the things she did with other people sexually and that was like a crazy realization that I had defined myself as that for so long um that that had become a part of my brand per se Mm -hmm. um and then that was when I really found a sense of self in I am worth more than just like what sex has become in my life and Mm -hmm. I I think that that it was then like when like in when I was like 1920 that I yeah. finally figured out that I would be so much better off and so much more satisfied and more contented with the way things were if I just reclaimed the word no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um and I have another follow-up question. So you talked um a few moments ago about consent in BDSM. Um, and I understand that consent is very important in BDSM. It's, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the founding principles of the lifestyle, essentially, um, would you say that your experiences in BDSM led you to have a better understanding of consent and a better hold on your ability to give it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think um, there's two sides to this. One is that a lot of people view BDSM as something that's like almost an excuse for abuse. Mm -hmm. Like there are a lot of people that just use it as a way to hurt someone without being taken to court about it. And that is something very scary. And I have been in a relationship, I've been in a couple of relationships like that. And it's not been anything like what I view BDSM as like in a in a technical way like mm. i bdsm is all about trust and and you know respect for each other and for i guess the lifestyle and for the craft of it and it's it's nothing to do with like actively hurting someone which is what yeah. it's viewed as and in you know 50 shades of gray and things like that is viewed as this very manipulative like gameplay sort of thing but it's really about open communication and a mm-hmm. bit. like the key to it is open communication especially before and after and during like and it did it did when i finally found relationships within bdsm that were healthy and like actively working towards the mantras that I believe people that practice BDSM should learn about before going into mm-hmm. like I I really think it did turn my my view of consent for myself like my my own usage of it around a lot. So yeah, it it really it helped me in the mm-hmm. sense that it made me it made me feel like I had a better command of it. Yeah. That's so awesome. Well, Ashley, you have had a truly remarkable sexual life thus far. (laughs) From my own estimation, I I mean, just from the way that you talk about it, it sounds like it has been, like you've just had like a really incredible life journey. And it has, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for allowing me to ask you deeply personal questions and sharing your answers with me and our listeners. Thank you so much for asking me. Like this is, this has been a really great experience for me as well. And I'm really glad glad that you were the person that is interviewing me. (laughs) Oh, yay. Do you have any closing words or messages or just like closing comments that you want to say? Um, I feel like I, I really want to say something to fellow artists um, and people who, who put out, tell stories in the media and who um, craft the way people see the world. Well, at least, you know, first first world people see the world. Um, I, I think that it's really important to include, to include in, in sex scenes specifically, but just in interactions between people that are attracted to each other in general, in like in you know movies and books and things it's it's really important to include casual consent because i feel like a lot of times 
sex scenes are portrayed as things that are supposed to be just very fluid and like no words and just very like hot and passionate and nothing is happening in the way of communication verbally and um I I really think that that should change because if we're going to change something societally I think a lot of the importance of like what is portrayed in media is is not is not seen as important as it is it's not seen as as important as it is and um if you're going to put out art and you want to change the world in this way try to lean towards you know creating a story that includes things that you want to see in the world as opposed to things that you want to just use to sell your work I, I, I guess I'm just vouching for artistic integrity and also for, um, I guess, a, a more honest portrayal of human behavior or what I hope that it someday will more easily be. Yeah. Create the art you want to see in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Which you do. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> with the work of yours that I have seen. Thank you. Yes. Um, For the listeners, Ashley is involved in, and now I know you acted in it. Were you also a writer, director? Yes, I wrote it. I um, directed it most of the time and I wrote, um, and I'm writing the music and uh, did a lot of the, like the location scouting and like the costuming and the, and was helped a lot by one of my cast members in propping it. And it's just a labor of love with a very small crew I've totally done the exact same thing yeah. before. Um, but anyway, the name of this project is Brunch Super Sluts. And it is going to come into the world, be born <laughs> officially, publicly. Someday in the near future, uh, there will probably be some local screenings in the central Oklahoma metro. Um, and it will be available to stream somewhere online. And when it becomes available, <laughs> I'm definitely going to tell you all all about it. Because um, support local artists, y'all. And support Ashley Mandennis. Oh my gosh. In all that they do. Thank They're you great. so much. Oh, you're great, Robin. <laughs> oh, this has been so splendid. Thank you again. Oh, anytime. Yay. Thanks for listening to The Peak, which is hosted and produced by me, Robin. Our theme music was written by Johnny Manchild of Johnny Manchild and the Poor Bastards. You can follow us on Facebook or at our website, thepeak.blueberry.net. That's thepeak.blubrry.net. If you have a question or comment about anything we talked about today, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, send me an email at thepeakpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.